Amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And part of how we do that is here at Mercy Fellowship, we typically preach right through books of the Bible. And so um, all fall, we've been uh, in a series in the book of Daniel um, called Life in Exile and Life for Eternity. And so um, you can grab uh, one of those uh, discipleship guides, let you know where we're at. We also still have scripture journals for the book of Daniel so you can uh, just take good notes and, and we want to just get God's word in your hands so that it can go into your hearts and, and, and hopefully uh, change the way you see the world and, and how you live your life. And so um, today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8 um, and uh, uh, that's, that's the text for today. So I don't have any New Testament text. I don't have anywhere else that we're going but this because it is kind of a, a big section uh, and, and as you turn your Bibles there, you turn your apps there and, and as you turn your app on Maybe like you see a Seahawks score, like that's okay, right? Like, like we still believe that there's good in the world, regardless of whatever happened this morning in Germany. Uh, and so uh, we'll just leave that alone. I'm a Husky fan, so I'm excited. God's good. Like evil has been vanquished, uh, good reigns. And so I woke up this morning with a smile on my face, no matter what else happens the rest of the day. Um, and so back to Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is a significant chapter because Daniel's given this vision uh, of kind of, kind of what's going to happen in the distant future. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, Curtis Hall did uh, Daniel chapter 7. It was very beastly. Uh, you know, it was like a perfect, like right before Halloween sermon. Uh, and in this one, uh, Daniel, uh, rather than a big flyover over human history, here Daniel's given like a very, very specific uh, vision for a specific time period for some specific geopolitical things that would happen somewhere between 160 to 180 years in the future. And if you're Daniel, you're kind of like, why do I need to know this? And maybe you're coming in today, this is your first time here, you haven't been in church in a while, and you're like, okay, so this is a vision from a guy who was exiled in Babylon, um, you know, a couple thousand years ago, 25, 2600 years ago. Why does that matter to me? Well, it matters because how we understand the events of the world impact how we see the world, impact how we react to the world. And so I want you to ask yourself as we turn there, like, how do you process current events? And, and, and you know, like I said, maybe there's good days where your team wins. Maybe there's bad days where your team loses. But I'm more talking about the big time events that unsettle and shake up the way you see everything. How do you process that? Where do you go to for hope? Where, where, how do you react and respond? What do um, those big, like, kind of unsettling times reveal about your character? What do they reveal about where you ultimately place your hope in? Because we said that this is a book written for God's people who were in exile, who had had their land conquered, who needed to have some sense of hope, some sense that while they were in a land that was not their own, while their old ways of being were being trampled, while everything that they had grown up with and, and believed about the world was deconstructed and unsettled, where did they find hope? How did they endure? What did that look like? Those moments when you're like, is, is God still active? Is, are, are God's truth still relevant. And so while we've said throughout this series, this is written for people in exile, and that for us who are Christians, we, we do believe that, that actually all people are exiled. All of us have been exiled from the Garden of Eden. All of us are exiled from a place of perfect communion with God and his people. I think if we only embody the identity of exiles, then we're just kind of waiting to get trampled. And I think we need to have realistic expectations for how the world works, realistic expectations for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But, but if you are exiled from the garden, if you're a Christian, your identity is in Christ. And that means that you're actually an ambassador of another kingdom. So while we all might be far from home, and there's lots of world events that happen that are disorienting and discouraging, if we can embody the identity of an ambassador, 
And we recognize that we are ambassadors of a kingdom that, that does ultimately reign, a kingdom that is ultimately victorious, a kingdom that is ultimately one of justice and mercy. Then I think we can have some hope. And so in Daniel chapter 2, this is a long intro, sorry guys. In Daniel chapter 2, right, we saw this vision of, of Babylon and the Medo-Persians coming, then the Greeks coming, then the Romans coming. Um, here we get a little more dialed in, but in all of those, when we see kingdoms of the world rise up, and when I say of the world, I mean kingdoms that are opposed to God. Part of their purpose, whether they know it or not, they're beastly in rebellion from God, and, and they seek to wear out the saints. And so if you come in this morning a little discouraged, or you come in this morning a little wore out, know that God has good news for you. And even in the midst of difficulty uh, and in the midst of even despair, he gives glimmers of hope. And we're going to see that here in Daniel chapter 8. And I just want to preface this as well. Daniel chapter 8 is a long section, um, but there's three main visions. So normally I just kind of work right through from start to finish. But there's kind of the vision, then the interpretation. And so we're going to jump around in the book a bit to, to read the vision read the interpretation so we can kind of deal with them individually through these first uh, three visions and then uh, end with a place of hope. So Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip ahead to 15 through 20, okay? 1 through 4, 15 through 20. It says this. This is Daniel. He says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, that, um, and I was at the um, Ulai Canal, and I raised my eyes. And I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the one, and the um, higher one came up last. So I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. Okay, let's stop here for just a moment. This setting right here is Daniel's talking. Times are tough for Daniel. Times are tough for God's people. Times are even about to be a little tough for the Babylonians who are their kind of captors. He says, hey, I'm in year three of the Belshazzar administration. It's like, hey, we had this Nebuchadnezzar guy. He reigned for a while, super erratic, super prideful, but ultimately got humbled, ultimately like, like placed himself under the authority of God. But now, now we got this young buck. And man, he, he is not a great king. Daniel was high up in the king's court. Now he's kind of been relegated to like a second class status within the court. And so we know from chapter five, we looked at a few weeks ago that Belshazzar was, was not a great king. And so Daniel has diminished roles, diminished influence. And yet God's still speaking to Daniel. God's still working through Daniel. He's giving him a vision of what's to come. And while Daniel had been serving in Babylon, when he, Daniel says, in my vision, I'm over in Susa of the citadel. Susa ended up becoming the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. So while Daniel's working with the Babylonians, his vision is, oh wait, there might actually be another center of worldly power. I think all of us have a very um, ethnocentric or national-centric view of how the world and history works. So for us, We'd be like, yeah, the center of power is Olympia. The center of power is Washington, D.C. And maybe like if Daniel's here and he's kind of in exile, he's like, I'm serving in D.C., but oh man, I've got a vision of Beijing. I've got a vision where I'm in Moscow. I've got a vision of, well, okay, that's probably the only two. Uh, I don't even know what the North Korean one's called, um, but not great. Okay, moving on. He says there's a nation that's going to rise up and overtake Babylon. That the, the message is clear that the center of the current kingdom that he's in uh, is not the final trajectory of history. And he says, Persia, they're going to start in the east, but they're going to go north and south and west and no beast. That means no created kingdom is going to be able to stand in their way. They're not going to stop the progress. Persia's victory, the Medo-Persian victory is inevitable. And we know from this timeline, it's actually coming up in just a couple years. And so this is the vision he's given. This is vision number one. Here's the interpretation of it. Chapter 8, verses 15 through 20. Because Daniel's like, I could use some 
explanation. Wouldn't it be great if you were given a vision from the Lord and also given the explanation? That'd be great. I, I don't know that I get either one of those, but here we go. Verse um, 15 through 20. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision and I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, uh, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he'd spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep, with my face on the ground. And he touched me, and he made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Meda and Persia. And so this is God giving Daniel real clarity on, on what he's seeing. Hey, you had this vision? I don't want you to guess what it's about. Let me just, I mean, I, I love when God is just like very like preschool simple for us. Hey, I don't want you to get weirded out on what the vision is. We're talking about the Medes and Persians. So if already you're like, oh, there's this goat with two horns and, and like what happens if like Russia and China get together? Like you, you've kind of missed it. He's speaking to a man in a, perf- in a time and place. And there's aspects of history that we're called to understand and God's giving instructions um, to, to this angel, first angel ever named in the Bible right here, Gabriel. And you hear Daniel's like, I want to know, God. I want to know what you have for us. I want to understand what you're trying to teach me. And we get this window of of this conversation in heaven between God and Gabriel. And he just goes, hey, Gabriel, can you just just spit some knowledge for Daniel, please? Can you just just help him out a little bit? I love, it almost feels like there's a little sarcasm uh, in what he's saying. Uh, And so God pursues Daniel with this messenger. And he says, hey, the vision I'm giving you, Vision one through two and three that we'll get to, it's about a time of the end. And already, when you think about what we call apocalyptic literature, we get weird really, really quick. This is where the charts go up. Uh, This is where we start scouring our news feeds, trying to understand like, hey, I heard there was an earthquake. You know, what does that mean? What's going on in Jerusalem right now? No, when we're talking end times in this time, in this context, What he's talking about is a time of God's people who've been in exile, who God, you know, 60, uh, 50, 60 years ago had said is only going to last 70 years. He's saying, hey, I'm giving you a vision for how God's people in exile ends. Their time of being in exile is going to come to an end. God's promised from the beginning there's going to be a limit to to the suffering of God's people. And so now it's been 50, it's been 60 years. Daniel was in that first wave that was brought out 50, 60, 70 years ago. He's now in his 80s, maybe trending into his 90s. We're like, we're fourth quarter. We are like, hey, exile's supposed to end. What's it gonna look like? God, you promised it was gonna get better. And and I'm kind of worried because God, in the last 60 years, like we've had a big, big political upheaval the last couple of years, God. And, and now I'm wondering, like, like can, I, can, I, can I rest and trust in what's going on in Babylon anymore? I mean, I finally made peace with Nebuchadnezzar being head of Babylon. He's gone. Things have been super chaotic. Now there's this Belshazzar guy. He, he's really, really rough. And God's saying, don't worry. Babylon's going to come to an end. And you're like, oh, you mean God's people aren't going to be in exile anymore? You mean like, like it's going to get better? Like, like, like are, are you telling me like peace and prosperity is going to reign? Are you telling me that like there's going to be this great Christian nation that's going to well up? That you, that, that like, like is Israel going to be restored? Is, is Jerusalem going to be built up? Like, like God, are you finally going to reign? And God's like, well, no, actually, I just said Babylon's done. Babylon's done because the Medes and the Persians show up. And they come like lightning. And they come fast and they come uh, with a lot of intensity. Nothing you can do is going to be able to stop it. And so Daniel gets this vision. He gets low to the ground. Eventually we'll see in this chapter he finds himself in a catatonic state. Because man, isn't the news overwhelming? Now, Now imagine you knew all of the news for the next couple hundred years, but only the really bad stuff. Like, why would you even get out of bed in the morning? 
Like, like I'd have to have the Keurig brought to my room, just have it right there, maybe just mainline it in, and then somebody have to be like, hey, here's a replay of that Husky game last night. It's going to be okay. You can get up. You can go. Like, it would, it would absolutely overwhelm you. We're not meant to even, I think, know all of the suffering that's going on in the world at a given point because we're not built to handle it. And so here's Daniel. He's, he's given this vision. He finds himself humbled, and God's messenger reaches down, and he lifts him up. You don't need to be brought low. As bad as things are, don't worry, Daniel. We're going to tell you about some bad stuff. You're, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. But, but, but don't worry, Daniel. Get up, because that's never the end of the story. That's never how things end. This indignity is going to come to an end. Don't worry, Daniel. God is just. Don't worry, Christian. God is just. God is merciful. God is kind. God is powerful. We would have to remind ourselves of the character and nature of God because otherwise history and current events just begins to overwhelm us because we see what's out there as powerful. The storms that rage in here feel powerful, but we have a God who's greater. Babylon will end. The Medes and the Persians will rise and overtake them. And, and, and what's interesting, right? He gets this vision. And again, on the timeline, this is a couple years uh, into Belshazzar's administration. We know a couple years later, Daniel's going to get called up to this um, like raging frat party that Belshazzar throws as the entire um, city is gonna, about to be overrun by the Medes and Persians. And that's when the writing on the wall comes, right? And like, hey, you're found wanting. And, and I have to imagine that, that when Daniel was called in to interpret that, Daniel might have had a bit of steel in his spine because he's like, I remember that vision I had where this comes to an end and another kingdom comes. And here it is. I can trust what God says. We can trust what God says. That should give us courage. That should give us endurance. That when God says that, hey, it might even be bad for a while, it might even be rough for a while, if, if that proves to be true, then what also proves to be true is God's promises for restoration are true. God's promises for healing are true. God's promises for life and joy and flourishing are also true. All right, this, there's more visions to go. We got to keep going. All right, so we got that ram with the two horns. That's the Medes and Persians. Let's go back to Daniel uh, 8, verse 5. Anybody confused yet? Okay. Daniel 8, 5, 5 through 8, and then we'll jump ahead to 21 and 22. I'll, I'll just do them both back to back. Here we go. Okay, this is the second vision. As I was considering that first vision, Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran into him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground. He trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. When he was strong, a great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Okay, stop there. And let's jump ahead to verses 21 and 22. Okay. All right, this is the explanation. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, okay, kings of Medo Persia, that's 20. And the goat, verse 21, is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And the later end of their kingdom, when their transgressions had reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Okay, we went a little farther there on that one. We'll, we'll slicker back in a minute. Okay, so we got this second vision, Medes and Persians, they're in charge, Babylon, long gone, and now here we got this goat coming from the west with one big horn. Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time? If you're a Seahawks fan, we got reminded today, it was Tom Brady, sorry, spoiler alert, we lost. Um, if you were holding up, I, I, just, I saved your afternoon if you DVR'd it, you don't have to watch it now. Who's the greatest of all time from Greece? Alexander, 
Alexander the Goat, Alexander the Great. That's who, like, we're talking again, 180, 190 years before this actually happened in history. God's giving Daniel this vision. Hey, by the way, Greece is going to spring up. It's going to be like this goat. It's like, it's like its feet aren't even going to touch the ground. No one can stop him. And the horn in the middle, that's the first king. It's talking about Alexander the Great, Alexander the Goat. It's a clear reference to him. Um, History records that the Greeks conquered the Medes and the Persians in three years. That's amazing. Think about how long it took to fix I-5 in Tacoma, right? Okay, we're just talking like a little road. We're talking with, without any of the technology we have here, Greece just overruns what was the greatest military the world had ever seen up until that point, three years. It's amazing. When it says without touching the ground, it was big. They were powerful, wrathful, quickly victorious. And then there's this imagery when, when kingdoms of the earth collide, it's like two animals fighting in the wilderness, right? It's like, like right now, like, like you, got, you got the bear of Russia and you got you, like the crane of Ukraine. Does anybody know? I don't know, right? But it, it, like it, it just, doesn't it just feel like this beastly, like, like wild conflict when the kingdoms of earth collide. It's like two animals in the wild and the stronger and the fiercer prevail. And for Greece, there was no negotiation, no peace treaty, just overwhelming force. We are going to trample you. And there's this, this amazing battle uh, that happened at one point in which the Greek army that had about 35,000 troops overwhelmed a Persian army with 110,000 troops. And in that, there was like 25,000 Medes and Persians were mowed down almost instantly. And the Greeks suffered just a couple hundred losses. That's a tenacity. That's otherworldly. I mean, like, like you're laying down the betting odds on the army with 110,000 that's been established for, for generations versus like this young upstart army with like 33,000. That's an upset. That's overwhelming force. And so, I mean, if you are watching world history at that moment, I mean, which side do you want to be on? I mean, frankly, I think we'd all just be like, hey, let's all sign up for Greek citizenship. Sounds great. Like, we just, you guys are in charge. You guys, like, like there's no, you guys are going to reign for thousands and thousands of years. This Alexander guy, let's go all in on him. Like, like let's put all of our faith and hope in a political leader, in a military leader. And, and like, if you know your world history, Alexander the Great's reign came out like lightning, flashed like lightning. I, I, I think sometimes we, even as Christians, get very easily impressed with meteoric rises, with power, with, with, with what's looking strong, what's on the ascendancy. And I think we also get very discouraged when where that power is and where that, that cultural shifts are and where the government's at and where the popular culture's at, when it's going very fast and in an ascendancy that we feel like is, is actually harmful for human flourishing, which is difficult for us as Christians to, to process, I think we get too fearful. I think we get too excited when it's our team. I think we get too fearful when it's the other team. See, kingdoms that rise quickly don't always last a long time. Alexander, when he had next to nothing left to accomplish, he died at the age of 33. He was done. And following his death, you'd think like, okay, hey, what an amazing start. He's conquered the entire known world. We can build on this. But see, the kingdoms of earth, the kingdoms of this world, they're, they're not characterized by, by, by godly values of, of humility and, and human flourishing. But instead, they get overtaken by, by greed and power dynamics. And so, so actually, what happened in history was four small kingdoms kind of broke off. There was a power struggle. Four different leaders uh, emerged. The great goat goes down. Greek, uh, Greece doesn't last. And so you're thinking, okay, we've got this vision. All these different generals took over. Like, surely when like 
Surely when the, the kingdoms of the world are, are chaotic and floundering, like that's the moment where the church stands up. That's the moment where the kingdom of God is, is going to well up. Like, right, that's what's going to happen? It doesn't go that way. It doesn't go that way, at least in this timeline, in this part of history. See, we have to have and, and maintain an eternal perspective over the history we see in the world. Because otherwise we'll get fixated on our chapter of it. And, and I mean this big geopolitically. And I mean this in your own life. In our own lives. I, I, I've had a lot of moments in my adult life that have felt like wins. And I think, okay, now everything's just up and to the right. Like things are just going to keep getting better. And then I've had a lot of moments where I felt like really brought low. Really discouraged. Really painful. That, that was like a bug coming at me. I can't even handle that. Okay. Like that moment. No. And it's easy to get too elated. It's easy to get too much despair and think this is just our lot in life. And so we need to have some sort of perspective that there's going to be highs. There's going to be lows. But how the story ends is what ultimately matters. Okay, we've got one more big vision here in this text. It's a big one. It's a long one. So that's how we're going to finish out the rest of our time. Daniel um, 8 verses 9 through 14. So we have the goat with the two horns, or the ram with the two horns rather. We've got the goat, Alexander the Great. We've got the four little horns rising up. And now we've got this guy here. Verses 9 through 14 says this. Out of one of them, meaning those, those four horns that came up uh, after Alexander, came a little horn which grew ex exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. That's a reference to the promised land. That's a reference to where the people of God were meant to dwell. Okay? It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgressions or rebellions. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate? and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So here's this collision. Here's this collision between um, uh, these kingdoms that had broken apart, and ultimately between God's people. This is, right here, the singular image that this chapter is really all about. The, all, everything we've been talking about up to is still relevant, still important, but it's all prelude to get Daniel to understand you're going to go Medes-Persians, you're going to go Greeks, you're going to go Alexander the Great. It's going to break apart, and, the, and, then, and then this is where it's going to get really bad. This is where, where God's people are going to suffer the most. The ram and the goat go head-to-head, -head, worldly conflict, but then there's this little horn that has a big role in the vision, not because of its geopolitical power, but because of, of the nature of who it opposes. See, ram and goats, it's just earthly kingdoms going against each other. I mean, that happens. It's been happening. It is happening. It will happen. But this, this little horn... All of a sudden, the language shifts from animals fighting one another to an animal, a horn, attacking a heavenly being. Like, this is about someone going from not just worried about the kingdoms of earth, but like, what can I do to oppose God? How can I trample God's goodness? How can I defile God's people? How can I desecrate God's temple? How can I, can I, how can I just like demystify God's law in a way that just makes it powerless? The little horn's conflict is not with the kingdoms of, war, of this world, but with the people and kingdom of God. It's talking about a holy war against the God of the universe. And before you start inserting your favorite like geopolitical villain, like this was definitely Trump, this was definitely Obama, like it's definitely Xi Jinping or Putin, 
Again, we actually know in history who this is talking about. It's actually talking about a historical figure. Alexander the Great, we've all kind of heard about. Hopefully if you got some schooling. Ever heard about Antiochus Epiphanes? Probably not. Wait, like, they don't make big epic like movies about Antiochus Epiphanes. You want to know why? He wasn't that great. He actually like lost a lot. His kingdom wasn't that awesome. This horn that comes out of the divided kingdoms from Greece is attributed to Antiochus Epiphanes. And that name literally means the illustrious God. Now, to be clear, like, like my mom, when I was born, she named me Christopher, which means bearer of Christ. She hoped that I would be a Christian and hoped that I would you know, serve the Lord in some way. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes' mom did not name him that. Did not name him the illustrious God. You know, he, he's like, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself that nickname. Like, you got any friends that give themselves nicknames? Right? It's, it's never something sad. It's always like, what's up, man? I'm the boss. Yeah, call me that. Or like, it, it's never good. I don't know. Don't worry about nicknames. My nickname in college was Princess. Uh, it was terrible. I didn't choose it. I was given that nickname. I don't know what it means. You can figure it out. He put his face on the coins. Instead of in God we trust, like our coins say, it said, Theos Epiphanes, God made manifest. Letting everyone know in his kingdom, he's God. And so, guy's super humble. Like I said, from a worldly historical perspective, he, he wasn't really that successful. His kingdom's not that noteworthy. If you did like a big world history class, they wouldn't talk much about him in terms of great battles won or territories covered or great works accomplished, right? There's, there's not like the great wall of epiphanies. Uh, there's not like great gardens that he made like Nebuchadnezzar. Like, he kind of didn't really do much of anything in terms of what we look at from a worldly standpoint. But see, Daniel's not being shown history from our perspective. He's actually being shown history from God's perspective. So in, in God's perspective, it wasn't about the great earthly accomplishments or the battles won. He's rating his opposition. I don't want to say his strength because he's, he's not ultimately strong, but he's rating his, like on the evil scale, based on how much he opposes God. How, how much injustice he enacts against God's people. How much evil and blasphemy and sin he committed. See, God doesn't see and get impressed by our works and accomplishments. He sees the sin. He sees the injustice visited on his people. And so Antiochus, like I said, the guy, I mean, basically is a loser. He lost like all sorts of battles. He tried to take over part of Egypt. And, and then at that point, Rome just knocked him back hard. So, so at the end of him losing this battle against Rome, who we all kind of know, right? They, they're the next guys on the scene. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? Rather than humbling himself, rather than like, you know, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? You know, or maybe, maybe like conquering is, it shouldn't really be my ministry. Instead, he's like, well, I just lost to Rome. So what I'm going to do is he marched his weary army back to Jerusalem and he massacred thousands of people during a Sabbath worship service. It's that same evil when a gunman comes into a church on a Sunday morning. It's that, it's that same evil that says, hey, I, you know what? I, I, I'm not finding success in this world, so, so I'm just going to go ahead and take on God and see how that goes. I can't win the world, so I'll take on God. From the perspective of Israel... It actually appeared like he was winning because they suffered. Like God's people really, truly suffered. Um, he entered in the temple, was called the Holy of Holies. That was where it was said that God was to dwell with his people. Only like the priest, high priest was supposed to go in there once a year. Instead, he just kind of walked in, took the altar, saw it, like massacred a pig all over it, which, which I mean, like, like a good, like, the Old Testament law, pigs are bad. By God's grace, read your New Testament, pigs are great. I have it on good authority that we got ham in the soup today. Praise God. It's going to be awesome. But for what he was doing was how can I actively defile their worship? How can I defile their God? And, and then he puts in wicked priests into the temple. How can I defile their worship? It's the same thing that happens right now when you have some churches that have actually brought in literally drag queen story hour into their Sunday morning services. The height of wickedness and said, this is holy, this is good. And so 
He put up a statue of Zeus in the temple. He said, there's no more going to be any daily sacrifices. Nothing's going to show you that your allegiance is to the God of the Bible. I'm God. No one's going to show you that there's a God of mercy who, who covers sin with the blood of a sacrifice that's not your own. So, so there's no hope for you. No hope for you in this world. No hope for you in the next. He's doing everything he can to end any sort of discipleship. You weren't, like, he burned all of what they would know as the Bibles, all the scrolls. Good old-fashioned book burning. Just know the book burning team is never the good team, right? The censorship team is never the good team. He's like, no, I don't want them to know about that. If, if, if he says, stop discipling your kids to worship the God of the Bible. I'm going to disciple them now. Human sacrifices were made in the temple. Everything that people in Israel required to eat was ceremonially unclean. And so here's Daniel in exile, a few years away from like, we're not going to be under the Babylonians anymore. And he's given this vision for a couple hundred years later. And he's like, wait, hold the phone. It's going to get worse? This is the future? How are we going to have hope when it looks like God's kingdom and God himself is losing or failing, while it looks like evil is winning, while it looks like actually the best thing you can do is just, just live for yourself. Live for your own kingdom. Where's the hope? Where's the hope? See, Daniel, again, catatonic, struggling to process it. We have to remember that regardless of current circumstances, and I mean that again geopolitically, I mean that in your life, I mean that in your heart, God is in control of his story. God is in control of his story. God is in control of his story. And even in the midst of this, things were looking so bad in this season that Daniel's shown again this vision of this conversation in heaven. And even some of the angels are like, God, how long? How long, God, must we endure? I want you to know, in the face of injustice, in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty, in the face of discouragement, it is an okay question to ask God how long. To cry out to God how long to pray for endurance, to pray for encouragement. See, what the little horn is doing sounds terrible. And they say, how long will it last? How long will God's people suffer persecution from this madman? The angels are concerned. And then this answer comes. 2,300 days and evenings. Oh. Okay, if you do your math... Right? If that's, if that's talking one day, then, then that's, that's six and a half years. If it's talking, um, you know, day and night, it's maybe like three years. And that doesn't really matter what the time frame is. When you get numbers in the Bible, at times we can get, again, weird. What the point of the number is saying is there is a season that it will look like evil's winning. Trust me, God says, that season will end. That season will end. Evil will not be eternal. Evil does not last forever. God will bring a definitive end and he will produce a righteous kingdom. He will produce restoration. He will produce healing. He will produce life. And so, so I just, I want you to have a takeaway today that evil always has its limits. Evil always has its limits. But our faith and our hope is in a God whose power and grace are limitless. His goodness is limitless. So our hope in every circumstance is God's over history and we trust in God's nature and character. That leads us to these last verses as we get ready to close. Saw the vision and here it is, 23 to the end. It says this. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction. And shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. 
and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that's been told to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So we're given some more details about the king. But as we, as we think about these, this wicked king, I, I think it's always easy for us to, to disembody ourselves from wickedness, to disembody ourselves from sin and be like, that's something other people do. I want us to know that in all of our hearts, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there is an anti-God spirit in us. The description apocalyptically here looks like, you know, what you'd call the Antichrist. But see, the Bible, when it's talking about an Antichrist, is not talking about always one singular leader that we all need to be spooked about. But it's the idea of that which opposes God's rule and reign. And let's just be clear, we, we all have that in our hearts. We all transgress against God's given limits. It says here that this king understands sinister schemes. Another way of saying that is he's smart and he's intelligent and he's used that and he's perverted it in ways that don't lead to flourishing in life. See, we've been given gifts, we've been given intellect, we've been given time. Everything you've been given, every breath you've been given is a gift from God. And to be honest, we don't use all of those gifts to glorify the Lord at all times right? Our speech sometimes defiles, our actions sometimes discourage, our hearts are prone to wander. And so our problem isn't usually that we don't understand what's right and wrong. Sometimes we just, we just don't desire the right things. We'd rather see our kingdom be built up. We'd rather be ticked off at God when things don't go well, rather than resting in God who's in and over history. See, evil doesn't always have to look like a nasty massacre, Sometimes it's just unrepentantly opposing God. Making yourself great in your own mind. It says he was great in his own mind. Rather than denying the goodness and greatness of God. See, we, we rob God of glory and we think somehow we win. And yet, the Bible teaches us that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. So to see God as good, God is glorious. And then to recognize we're made in his image. The more we worship and praise God, the, for lack of a better term, the higher self-esteem we should have. At least the greater confidence in God's purposes for us and what he's meant for us. It says in these verses that his power shall be great, but not by his own power. The evil desires independence from God, but it recognizes that it can't be autonomous. It says he had no integrity. The truth and being trustworthy actually does matter. The evil denies what is true and lifts up what is false. See, evil always ends up being self-centered, never God-glorifying. Because of our sin, we all have a little Antiochus inside of us that wants to wage war against God's design and desires for us. And so, so he says, hey, you're not going to be the one that's going to win that battle. It's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Like, I, I could come up here and tell you, like, hey, if you don't turn from sin, if you don't trust Jesus, like, your end is destruction. But if you do turn from sin, if you do trust Jesus, hey, there's a hope for eternity and there's encouragement now and your identity's in Christ. And I, I, could, I could be the most convincing I could ever be. It still has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in you to say, I'm done with my kingdom. I'm ready to recognize there's a greater king. There is a true prince of peace. And the more I align my life with him and his principles and his power, the greater flourishing there is. I don't mean earthly prosperity. I mean joy even in the midst of the battle. I mean hope for eternity. See, we erect idols in our hearts. Just like Antiochus erected an idol in the temple. We fail to point our children to Jesus. See, like, Antiochus, he's like, no, you can't go teach your kids about God. And I think sometimes some of us are like, eh, I'll do that anyway. Antiochus is like, hey, I'm going to burn all the Bibles. You can't read the Bible. And we're like, eh, we actually already fasted from the Bible anyway. I mean, Twitter's way more interesting. It's way more, like, I mean, it gets the synapses firing. See, some of us, our lives are temples that are being trampled and we're just allowing it to happen. 
our conflict isn't usually with the world and with other people. Usually it's, it's with God. We all have disappointments in our lives. We all have pain in our lives. And sometimes we think God is the source of that. When God's the one saying, no, I'm the one bringing healing and restoration. I'm the one bringing joy. So how do we respond to these difficult circumstances? I want to make sure we have a couple practical things for us as we close. Number one, I do think that this text is a call for God's people to repent. To repent of sin, of relying on our own kingdoms, or pledging our allegiance to the kingdoms of the world, and to not fight a battle and try to win a war, but to actually surrender and join a kingdom that's ultimately just and glorious and good and leads to life and flourishing for ourselves and for others. To trust Jesus as our king rather than trying to make ourselves king. Number two, I believe we need this. I believe we need to take heart. Guys, I know this has been heavy. It's a heavy text. But don't lose heart, take heart. There's so much that could discourage in this vision, in this world. It'd be easy to fall into despair. There's so much bad news on any given day that you could easily um, just throw up the hands and resign. And, and yet, here we see we're not capable of fixing ourselves or the world. We need hope. We, without hope, it's, it's easy for what is realistic to become fatalistic. Instead, we're called to be hopeful exiles. We're called to be hopeful ambassadors. We're called to be settled and peaceful when the rest of the world is anxious and chaotic. There's this glimmer of hope. There's this good news in this text. Verse 25 says this, the little horn will rise up against God. You're like, oh no, and he shall be broken, but not by human hands. Translation, God wins. God wins. Take heart that God wins. When the world looks like a loss, when your heart feels like a loss, when, when, when your relationships feel like a loss, never forget that God wins. That he does step in and intervene. I mean, to be clear, Antiochus is gone. I mean, literally the dustbin of history. The temple actually did get cleaned out. His kingdom came to an end. Like, the temple was restored. All of the Antichrist spirit in our own hearts in this world will be destroyed and the world will be renewed. And so our hope is that there is a God that is greater than all of the evil we see in the world. And that that God who's so great, he can overpower even the evil within your own heart. You don't need to fight. You need to surrender. And when you do, take heart. Take heart that as disciples living in exile, we live in light of a God who's king over all history, that we're not in the business of burning kingdoms to the ground. We're in the business of building up a kingdom that lasts for eternity, that never ends. I mean, even Daniel's told, hey, this vision is for later. Like, go ahead and process it. Go ahead and look at it. But don't dwell there. Seal it up. Put it away. Know what's there. But don't dwell on that. leads to our last point. What do we do? How do we live in response to difficult times? How are we as, as God's people supposed to respond? Grieve and get to work. Grieve and get to work. Grieve and get to work. See, Daniel sees the vision of all this horrible stuff. Man, it lays him up. He's like, I am not leaving the house. If, if that's what the world looks like, I want no part of it. Are you, are you kidding me, God? I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish my days and you're telling me generations from now, God's people are going to suffer worse? I mean, imagine you're given a vision of, of 2,500, the year 2,500, and it's not better than now? Guys, world history does not progress apart from the trajectory of God's history of future glory. And so he grieves. It is okay to grieve when injustice happens. It is okay to process pain and trauma you've experienced in your life. But we're not called to dwell there. At a certain point, Daniel, given of a much more horrifying vision than probably anything that we've ever experienced, he's like, you know what? I can't stay on this couch anymore. I can't doom scroll this phone anymore. 
I can't get worked up about what's going on in politics or the world anymore. I'm supposed to do the king's business. And Daniel gets up. And we're called to get up and do the king's business. For us, that king is Jesus. And so let me ask you, what is the business the king has given you? If you need clues and hints, if you're married, it's in that relationship. If you have kids, it's discipling those kids. If you have a job, it's in that workplace. If you're in school, it's to do that. If you're part of this church, it's to work here in this church. If you're living here in Snohomish County, it's called to do the king's work in this county. We are called to grieve. It's okay to grieve and get to work. See, a period of intense mourning, Daniel doesn't move on. I'm not telling you don't feel it. You're not called to move on, but we are all called to move, to not stay in that place of pain, to not wallow in that grief. Man, you need a counselor, get a counselor. You need a good friend, get a good friend. Like, do the work, that's great. But the work can't just be wallowing in the grief because there's work to be done. Daniel's called to serve the king. In this case, it's talking about Belshazzar. He's a pretty bad king, but, but I think it's a double meaning. I think Daniel is like, no, no, this vision shows me there's a throne room greater than the power of this earth. I'm going to do that king's business and not worry about what's going on here. Yeah, he still wrestles. I love it here. He says, but I was appalled by the vision. I didn't understand it. That's okay too. It is okay for us to not have all the answers. Not having all the answers is not a reason to stop the work. But to endure, to persevere, to to wrestle with human suffering, to, to wrestle with injustice, to wrestle with God's sovereignty. But God has promised suffering will end and he will return. So we can grieve and we can get to work. Because we know that evil was conquered. We know that evil will be conquered. What we're going to do now is, is Garrett's going to come up and we're going, to, we're going to sing songs to our king. We're going to worship. And then we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this is for you. It's remembering Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for you. That our king saw the suffering of this earth and his answer for it was to endure all the sin, all the wrath for us, for you, so that we could enjoy the victory of his resurrection. That that moment at the cross, when you go forward and you take it, I want you to remember that there was a moment that looked like evil had won. That There was an, a moment, a day, a weekend, where it looked like hope was dead. And then as you take communion, remember that the cross is where evil was actually defeated. And we know that because we have hope and trust in the resurrection of Jesus. He's conquered sin and death. That all of the kingdoms of this world did their best to overthrow our God, but resurrection is where we see victory, evil defeated and broken by no human hand. And then we go about our days and our lives where we can be appalled by the evil in the world, we cannot understand everything, but we get back to the king's business as we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.